0: What is the presence of God? A lot of people hear that question and think that it means some mystical experience or hearing an audible voice from the sky. Still others consider the presence of God to be comfort in a difficult situation. Pull out a theology book and you'll see all kinds of explanations and big words for what the presence of God is. You'll hear words that describe the character and nature of God. You'll hear the word immanence, which means God is present in all of creation while remaining distant from it. You'll hear the word transcendence. God is exalted above and beyond us. You'll hear the term omnipresence. There is no place where God is not. All all of God is everywhere. But most Christians, let's be honest, most of us will not read a systematic theology textbook. So how is this practical? How is understanding the attributes of God practical in our daily lives? Well, think about the Bible as this. It's a, it's a library. It's a collection of books that are cohesive, that all have a common theme. And that theme is Jesus, God working in and through his creation to proclaim the glory of Christ. And all of these books are are together, and and you know this, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and the last book of the Bible is Revelation. So you say, what does this matter? Well, when you read the Bible as a whole, when you study who God is and the Bible all the way through, you start to see things that overlap. And you start to see things that, that coordinate with other passages in Scripture. But the biggest picture that you'll see when you read Genesis and Revelation is that it's not a long line of books, Read the Bible as a circle. Where Genesis begins, that's where Revelation returns. It comes back full circle, back to the garden, back to God establishing everything in a perfect way. Ryan Lister, a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, writes this. In the book of Genesis, Eden is the first couple's home, but more importantly, it is God's sanctuary. The garden temple where the creator and his image bearers relate. Fast forward to the end of our Bibles and we see a very similar picture, but on a much larger scale. All of heaven has collided with the whole earth to make a perfect sanctuary for God to dwell with man. In the book of Revelation, Eden has returned and expanded into new heaven and new earth where all of God's people enjoy his presence eternally. Adam and Eve experienced the presence of God that we don't get to do right now, but one day we will. But we do have God's presence. If you read the Bible as a whole, you see that that sin had separated man from God. But what did God do? God sent his son, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, to live with us, to, as the Old Testament would say, to pitch his tent with us, to live here, to be with us. Lister continues, God himself comes to save. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered human history to give his life as a ransom for many. In his grace, God buys us back in the most unimaginable way possible. God in Christ became a man, walked among humanity, and died for his people. In this merciful act, Christ reconciles us to himself and reopens the access to the Father so that those who were once exiled from his presence might again draw near to God. This passage before us this morning is Genesis 26. And while there are a few encounters with God here, uh, more miraculous than than, than any of us have experienced, where uh, Isaac actually heard the voice of God, there's a few encounters. The bigger picture here are those three theological terms that I mentioned earlier. Imminence, transcendence, omnipresence. And what does that point us to? The fact that God is present, that we are amongst the presence of God. We are in the presence of God right at this moment, and everywhere we go we are. But these three ideas show us that God, who is all of those things, fulfills his promise. That his presence is everywhere. That you don't have to run to a mountaintop. That you don't have to come to a member of the clergy. That God's presence is everywhere even in the midst of our tragedy, even in the midst of, of our sorrow and our sadness, that God's presence is everywhere. So let's look at the text this morning. First thing that we see is found in verses 1 through 5, and it's the promise of God's presence. And you'll see the similarities between Abraham and Isaac here. If you remember Abraham's story, in, specifically in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, you'll see how similar these stories are. Verse 1 says that there was a famine in the land. Now keep in mind Abraham and all the stuff that he went through. So there was a a famine that had gone through uh, Palestine. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you know that there is a whole lot of dirt. It doesn't rain very much there. We, We lived in San Diego for three years as a family, and there would be weeks and months without rain. And if you've ever imagine Southern California, you've never been there, you may think it's just beaches and palm trees, but it's a whole lot of dirt, too. It's a dry climate, and once you get away from the touristy areas and the beaches, you'll start to see that it's, again, a lot of dirt. One of my favorite pastors, Mark Dever, was preaching at my in-law's church uh, just north of San Diego, and he pastors Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., similar climate to what we deal with. And he was preaching at this church, and his sermon opening says this. It made me laugh, and I watched it, and uh, it was typical of Mark Dever. He said this, quote, I enjoyed my drive here this morning when you come from the old gray, gray, rainy east coast. It is beautiful, especially in January, to come to San Diego and enjoy the sunshine in the variety of colors. You've got cream and yellow and brown and cream and brown and yellow. Just the variety of God's creation in so many ways. And it's true. You know what I'm talking about if you've been there. It's a whole lot of browns and creams. We get lots of rain here in East Tennessee. And everything is green until the winter comes. The Southern California climate is similar to what they faced, what Isaac was dealing with. If you look at a map, it's it's a similar uh, longitude. And so he was facing a, a, a famine, a drought. It's warm, it's dry, it's arid. You can't grow crops when it doesn't rain. And what happens when you don't grow crops? You can't feed your family or your cattle. Your wealth evaporates. And it doesn't take long for people to want to flee from this. We we see this in American history in the 1930s with the Dust Bowl. 2.5 million people moved out of the Plains States hoping to make a better life for themselves because the water didn't come. And the crops couldn't grow, the, the people couldn't feed their families, they couldn't make money. And so Isaac is facing the same situation. And so uh, it, just like his father before him, he, he took everything that he had and he, he wanted to leave. And he wanted to go to Egypt. Egypt. Shouldn't he have gone further north or further south? Why Egypt? Well, if you look at a satellite picture of Egypt, it's a whole lot of brown except one green strip that runs north and south all the way down. It's the Nile River. So people would flee to Egypt to go get access to water so they could plant things and have things grow and feed their families. Now you get to the Nile and you have this access. And so Isaac was likely going to the Nile. And verse 1 says there was a, a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Again, similarities here. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now you may think, well, Isaac was Abraham's offspring, the one who inherited everything from Abraham. He was one of the richest men of his day. How could God bless someone And then allow him to go through a famine. How is this possible? Well, I can tell you this as a a believer, as a Christian in the year 2021, that following Christ doesn't mean that you're going to be physically and materially blessed. It does not guarantee you an easy existence. In fact, following after Christ and being faithful to God's calling in our lives often means that our lives will be even more difficult than it would have been otherwise. And if you don't believe this, find a missionary and ask them, is your life easier now that you have given up all that you know, everything that you have, and you've moved to a country, you've learned a new language, you've learned a new culture, you have to adapt to other ways of living? And see if it's easier for them. It's not. And so we as believers, we we read this and we fall into the dangerous trap of believing that because Isaac behaved, God blessed him. And we'll see in a few minutes that Isaac didn't behave. So Isaac faced a famine. He he traveled to Gerar to meet Abimelech. This may or may not have been the same Abimelech that Abraham encountered. Most likely it was a title for a ruler. But Isaac goes to this ruler and along the journey, Isaac encounters God. Notice what, that this was the same place, Gerar, that Abraham had lied about his wife Sarah, saying that Sarah's my sister. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and kept my commandments, my statues and my laws. God warns Isaac not to go any further. Isaac was to to stay there, to live in the land of promise. Everything in Isaac wanted to leave. He wanted to go to a place where where it was safer for his family, where he could be more productive. Staying in Gerar probably meant that all of his family would perish. They would not survive. But notice in verse 5, God says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws wait a minute, did he? Did Abraham keep all of these laws? Did Abraham keep all the commandments? My goodness, if you haven't listened to this, just read the the previous 10 or 15 chapters and you will see that almost at every turn, Abraham did exactly the opposite of that. So what are we to make of this? Here's a great example of why biblical literacy goes beyond just knowing these stories, because we can recount the story of Abraham. But it goes beyond that. You have to be able to see how it all fits together. Listen, on his own, Abraham was not a righteous man. He did a lot of bad things, things probably worse than any of us have ever done. He was not a quote unquote good person. On the surface, he's the definition of an unworthy person, unworthy of God's promise. But what does Genesis 15, 6 say? And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God made Abraham righteous. God the Father looked at Abraham, and he saw, two thousands of years before Jesus would come on the scene, he looked at Abraham, and he said, you are my son. I don't see your sin anymore. I see the perfection and the righteousness of my own son. It was given to Abraham long before Jesus physically arrived because he had faith. See, far too many people outside of the Christian faith complain about us believing that Abraham was some good guy, right? We, 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 we extol Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and David. And then when we dig deep into their lives, we see that they were very sinful people just like us. We see that their problems are are, are a TV talk show in the afternoon, right? This is family drama with chairs flying all over the place, right? We, We see these bad things that these guys did, and people outside of the Christian faith see it too, and they say, well, wait a minute. You believe that these men were men of God, but yet they had multiple wives, they were murderers, they cheated on their spouse, they didn't raise their kids correctly, Abraham, assaulted a woman and used her to produce a baby and you're saying that those are men that we should follow after how is that so well it doesn't make sense unless you believe that God gave them the righteousness that God uh, uh, gave them the faith to believe in his promises that so it only the transaction did not come from them to God, it only came from God to them. That God saw them and not, didn't see their sin, but in saw, instead saw the imputed righteousness, the righteousness that's not ours, that we did not earn, but that Jesus earned for us and earned for them. To be honest, a lot of Christians don't understand this either. So their faith stays shallow. Yes, they know the stories of the Bible, but they can't answer the hard questions. And so you know what happens, and I've seen this time and time again. As adults, if we don't answer these questions, if we don't deal with this, our kids are going to grow up, and our kids are going to mature, and they're not going to be able to answer these either. And you watch. Those kids will abandon the church, abandon the faith. Because all we've taught them are simple stories about how we need to be like Abraham. And be brave like Daniel in the lion's den to to face our giants like David. We didn't teach them that all of these men were flawed and they needed a savior. That they had to have someone outside of them, an alien righteousness given to them in order to make them right with the father. So don't get yourself twisted in knots trying to defend the actions of Abraham. You don't need to. Because Abraham wasn't righteous on his own. It was that God made him righteous and declared him righteous because Abraham had faith. Well, then in verses 6 through 16, we see sin in God's presence. Isaac does just as God commanded. He settles in Gerar, but then sin takes center stage. Again, this story repeats itself, doesn't it? It's not just us that we have this problem with falling into sin time and again. Look at verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said this. Listen, this is repeating the same thing that his father did. He said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. It mirrors exactly what Abraham did to Isaac's mother. Paul in 1 Corinthians warns us to avoid making the same mistakes as those before us. It's wise. We should learn from history, shouldn't we? But Isaac didn't get it. He went from a a spiritual high, literally hearing the voice of God, to lying about his wife. Genesis 24 was devoted to the story of Isaac waiting for his bride to come. He sent someone thousands of miles away to get a bride for him. God provided that. They bring the bride back, and then not that long after this, he's lying about who his wife is. question that I posed to you when we spoke preached through Abraham. Husbands, how long would it take for your wife to do some damage to you if you said, yeah, she's not my wife, she's my sister. If you have a doghouse, you're sleeping in it, aren't you? We're seeing this pattern repeated. Over and over again. And just a moment ago, I said that far too many of us are are weak in our knowledge of the Bible. Let me put it another way. There are many believers who know the Bible, but few who know about the Bible. This is across all denominations, across all religious tribes. But there is another problem here that we see addressed here in this text. But this time, it's on the other side of things. See, Isaac knew about God. He spoke to him. He, he knew all of the things that we try to st- study about God. We, he, he understood all of these things. He understood that, that God uh, uh, picked Abraham to be his, his, the father of many nations. And so he saw that and he knows that the promise is coming through Abraham and then through Isaac. He knows this. But did it change him? Did it, did it have an effect in his heart? He knows it here, but but that foot and a half between your your brain and your heart there's a lot that gets lost in there isn't it it's like someone who gets a phd in some christian ministry vocation and then rejects jesus as savior you know all about the bible you you know the words you know the truth you know the big theological language you know all of that but did it change your heart The danger of people being rich in knowledge with an unchanged heart is just as problematic as inch deep believers. If knowing about God's character doesn't change you, if knowing the truths of the riches of Scripture doesn't change you, then your knowledge is worth nothing. For this to actually be impactful, you have to have a head change and a heart change, you have to have affections and knowledge. Isaac knew, but the flesh was stronger. Abimelech saw this even, and this is a pagan king saying this. When he had been there a long time, verse 8, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Maybe even put in parentheses, this is in Scripture, as only a husband and a wife can do with one another. So Isaac or Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, this is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister, Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Again, selfishness, right? He's trying to protect himself so he lies about his sister or his wife. Now this passage may lead some to believe in generational curses. I've heard that over the years that people believe in generational curses where you see uh, sons doing the same work of of the father. Father does bad acts. The son born later commits the same bad acts. Some say this is a curse, but I don't see that happening in the Bible. But it is pretty clear that children do learn from their parents. You can make the argument, too, that there is something ingrained in us in DNA. It's not a generational curse so much as it is just faulty wiring. But, but children in our homes, it's amazing to see this. That even adoptive parents train their children, and the children act like they're parents. And honestly, it's often not your best quality. It's often your worst that gets passed down. You ever notice that? Happened here with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham lies. Isaac does the same thing. Abraham is selfish. Isaac does the exact same thing. Do you remember what happened when Abraham was caught in his lie? He was called out by the pagan king of Abimelech. What happens now to Isaac? Look at verses 10 and 11. Abimelech said this, what is is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac, like his father, is rebuked by a pagan king. Abraham was rebuked in chapters 12 and 20, and applying this to our lives is painful, isn't it? I can think of instances in my life where I did not behave as I should have. Where I responded to people in a way where I lost my temper, where I got angry. Where where I said things that I shouldn't have said, where I, I didn't treat people as image bearers, where, where I was rude or insensitive or callous. And people know that I'm a believer, they know I'm a pastor. Like, don't put a sticker on the back of your car if you're going to cut people off on the road, right? Certainly don't say anything to anybody from out your window. But how many times have we done that and our testimony is damaged because of it? How many times have have we been called out for not acting like we claim that we should be acting? Isaac's rebuked by a pagan king. So what does this lead us to? Isaac lied, Isaac sinned, Isaac put his wife in a bad place, just like his father. None of us are perfect. We all fight against sin in the flesh, but we do have a standard. And so, even though we know we often fail, we must aim to live upright lives that exhibit eternal external signs of an internal reality. But rebuke still hurts, especially when we know we're guilty. And to make matters worse, Isaac puts Rebekah into harm's way. So Isaac is protecting himself at the cost of his wife. Just like when Abraham lied and Sarah became part of the king's harem. It was a pagan king who protected her, not her husband. In 26 chapters in Genesis, we've seen multiple men. Adam, Abraham, and Isaac. Isaac who fail in their primary responsibility for protecting their wives, for loving their wives. Here the pagan, the, the non-believer, the one who is an enemy of God, acted more uprightly than did Isaac. But not all is wrong with Isaac. Look at verses 12 and through 14. It shows that he was prosperous. God did bless him. He could have coasted, he could have taken the inheritance that he got from Abraham, and he could have just coasted along, but he didn't. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich. And he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Notice what happens in verse 14. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. They saw what was happening. Keep in mind, this is a famine. And somehow, God blesses Isaac. How that happens, I don't know, but he grew a lot. His wealth grew. His his stature grew. His power grew. His prosperity grew. It returned a hundredfold. This is astounding, even in places where it rains. And this is no rain, arid land. And he grows it a hundredfold. You see why the Philistines would be jealous. Look at verses 15 and 16. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. They're vandalizing his property. They're they're going in and the wells that had already been dug by Abraham, they're going in and putting dirt inside of them. They're basically killing that well. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac leaves at the request of the king. He moves away from his jealous neighbors who vandalized his property. He left Gerar and he moved down to the Gerar River basin. Verses 18 and 19 show what Isaac did next. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, so he cleaned up the mess, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, Everything that Isaac touched turned to gold. Why? As you would imagine, the people got jealous, right? That that when people see others with success, inwardly our flesh, our flesh craves to have what they have. Why did they get it? Why did that guy over there win the lottery? Why did that guy get all this money through inheritance? Why does that guy have a bigger house than me? Why does his children behave and mine don't? Why? Everything that Isaac touched turned to gold and the the people around him, the pagans around him saw that and they got jealous. The herdsmen of Gerar fought with Isaac's men saying that the water belonged to them. Then Isaac's men dug another well and the fighting stopped. Isaac named that well Rehoboth saying for the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well from there he went up to Beersheba And almost immediately, God appears to him again. Second time. He says this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Isaac built an altar. He was so moved by this encounter with God that he built an altar so that everybody who passed by would see the importance of this place. And God affirms his promise to Isaac in these verses. And Isaac follows after God. Now, I think we can pause here for a second and we can talk about in our own lives the faithfulness of God. For the last 18 months, a lot of us have questioned the faithfulness of God, haven't we? Especially in the last couple weeks. That we, we question, God, we, we, we've seen so many terrible things happening. How is this a definition of your faithfulness? In the first 10 years I served in ministry, before we came here, Um, I never once had a thought to quit. Never never once thought, I want to get out of ministry, I want to do something else, give me a cubicle, give me something where I I can clock out at 5 and go home and go to sleep and wake up in the morning, clock in at 9 and leave my troubles at the office, right? Never did I ever think that. And I want to be honest with you. Over the last year and a half, that thought has come up many times. That I've prayed, God, just give me something else. I I am not equipped to lead other people when I'm not even strong enough to deal with my own self. God, how can I be a leader? How can I be a pastor? How can I preach every week when, when there are things in Scripture that I look at and I'm so troubled by? How, how can I lead people when, when people are coming to me for advice and trying to ask me questions when I'm a mess myself? How, how can I do this? I just want to do something else. Just give me an opportunity to run away and hide and just become a regular church member and not have to deal with this. There were days, and by God's grace they were few, but there were days that I'd wake up in the morning and I'd eat breakfast and I would not have the strength to do anything and I'd go back to bed. Didn't run a fever, wasn't sick physically. All of my energy was gone. And I've brought this up with some pastor friends of mine, um, and I've asked them the questions What have you felt like over the last 18 months? And they've said the exact same thing. Some have quit. Some will never go back into ministry because they've, they've experienced such a low point in their lives that it's affecting their lives, it's affecting their families, it's affecting them. And they don't want to lead poorly. And by God's grace, I've been able to weather those questions and those storms, but it hasn't been easy. Now, I often say this, and again, this is not to get pity on me, but, but, but who pastors the pastor, right? Who, who shepherds me? The elders, certainly. But, but who shepherds the shepherd? I'm not trying to win sympathy, but what I'm telling you is that I wanted to quit multiple times, and I wanted to give up, and I wanted to run away, and I wanted to hide. But hear me out on this. It was God's faithfulness at each and every turn that said, No, I've called you here. You're staying here. You're not leaving, and I'm not going to let you leave. Because... If I ran off like Jonah, that story didn't go very well for him, did it? And guess what? God still won, didn't he? Jonah still did what God called him to do. But Jonah just made it it very difficult for himself. Why? God's faithfulness was there at each and every turn saying, no, I've called you, I've equipped you, I've given you the ability to endure all of these trials and all of these things that you have no idea what you're doing right now. And I don't. But God was always faithful. If I make the claim that that here I believe in God's imminence and his transcendence and his omnipresence, then I must believe that he will keep his word to me. One day I may look back at my life and see suffering and heartache and all of these things, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't faithful. I know that my God will supply every need I have according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I know that all the promises of God find their yes in him. Isaac experienced this joy. This weird experience of, of joy, of, of, of understanding who God is, but at the same time still trying to rebel against what God has wanted in us. This is what Isaac experienced. But he continued to trust in the promises of God. This is what happens in verses 26-33. In verses 26-31, the locals make peace with Isaac. Why? Because the Lord was with him. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar... With Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So they He made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. Abimelech looked at Isaac and saw all the wonderful things that had happened. A bountiful harvest during a famine. Repeated success in digging wells and growing influence. Peace came about because the pagans, the people opposed to Isaac and opposed to God, saw that Isaac could never have done this on his own that, that he had God was with him I'll say this and I've said this multiple times over the last couple years but following after God does not mean that you are going to reap material blessings simply saying that I'm a child of God does not mean that all of a sudden your bank account grows your debt goes away your marriage is stronger. Your children love the Lord. Your children obey you. It doesn't mean that at all. The historical pattern of the Christian life is one of difficulty and struggle, especially those who we, record, we read and who served in ministry. Uh, some of the most influential Christians in history have suffered greatly. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in, uh, in, in England in the 1800s, suffered from extreme pain from gout and to a point where he was bedridden and, and he would stumble up to, to preach and then uh, he would go home and for the next week he would be um, laying in his bed. George Whitfield followed the call of God to go across the Atlantic and, and in the state of Georgia he started an orphanage which caused him to be in debt for the, most of his life after. Jonathan Edwards, who is known as the, the greatest Christian theologian in American history, Jonathan Edwards Um, who is probably one of the greatest preachers in American history, was fired from his church because he said only Christians should take part in the Lord's Supper. Jonathan Edwards went to be a minister to the the Indians in the western part of the state of Massachusetts, and then he, he became the president of Princeton University and died not long after. Struggle, difficulty, heartache, pain, suffering. And these are just three examples. We could list billions upon millions of Christians who have died for their faith, who have proclaimed that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and they were murdered for what they said and what they believed. They didn't see material gain. They didn't see improved health. They didn't see uh, prosperity. They saw heartache and pain, but God was always, always faithful to them. His faithfulness came mostly in a promise that through the faith in Christ that they have, they can have a future hope. A future without the kinds of pain and suffering that they knew during their lives. They all proclaimed hope in Jesus and that Jesus would one day make things right for them. I'd be lying to you if I told you that God promises you the good life right now. Because right now, a lot of you are suffering. A lot of us are suffering right now. We're questioning the goodness of God. We're questioning the faithfulness of God. It's natural. It's normal. And we're all wondering, in all of these things that go on in our lives, some more than others, but, but, but all of these things that, that we're struggling with, we're wondering, where is God? How is God faithful in this? And I'd be lying to you if I said that, man, just trust God and everything's going to go well. There are those who do say that. I don't see that in the Bible because it's not there. I also uh, don't see that in the realities because we have many, many believers right now, our entire church, Christians, who we're suffering and we're struggling. And we sometimes don't see the faithfulness of God. We don't always understand why God does what he does. We don't understand uh, when he does these things and, and why he does these things, but we must believe that God does whatever is good by his definition, not by ours. Last week and a half, I would have done a whole lot, thing, did, done things a whole lot differently than what God did. You would have too. And, and, and the, the reality is, is that we may never understand why God did what he did. Or why God does what he does. We we may never understand that. But we have to believe, if we believe in God's word, that everything that he does is good. By his definition. Well, back to this passage. God did do good things for Isaac, after saying all of that. But he did them so that Isaac would be known to those on the outside as a follower of God. Look at verses 32 and 33. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. A well would be a strange way to bless someone today. I love you so much, I'm going to go dig a hole in your yard. Does that? It would be great if we were in the middle of a desert, wouldn't it? It would be life-giving. It would be life-sustaining. It it would be nourishment for us. It would be survival for us. But even though God uh, was with Isaac all the time, this this is what God did for Isaac. Even though he was with him all the time, he still faced difficulty. So again, this pattern of prosperity and difficulty, prosperity and difficulty, this up and down life that Isaac led. Look at verses 34 and 35. When Esau, his son, was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Listen to this. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. In other words, their son's actions made their life bitter. Esau didn't care about his family's legacy. He married women that were outside of his family, the Hittites. They were outsiders, women he should have avoided, yet he married them anyway, grieving his parents. Not all of Isaac's story is prosperity. In the midst of having everything that he could have ever wanted, his kid goes off and does something that hurt him. I know some of your stories, and those of you with adult children, I know that you've experienced a lot. And I know what I've done to my own parents. Made them bitter, not forever. Not all of this story is about prosperity. This Genesis story is about humanity and how we constantly do things that we know we shouldn't do, but yet God at every single turn is faithful. We talk about our salvation is secure, right? We, we believe that. If you don't believe that, come talk to me afterwards. Our salvation is secure because it's God that has given it to us. And so God gives it to us. He'll never take it away. It's because God gives it. And the same thing happens here. God gave the, the covenant to his chosen people. He, he made a covenant with them that he knew that those people couldn't keep up their end of the bargain. And yet God still says, you sin." And you sin and you sin some more, but I am still here. And for the believer, we deal with the same thing, don't we? That we continue to sin, we continue to struggle, we continue to break God's law, and we continue to disappoint our Heavenly Father. And yet, who is there all the time? God's still there, He's still faithful. God was with Isaac every step of his journey, and the same is about it, said it about Abraham. No matter what those two men did, God never wavered in his commitment to them. I'm going to say something that may sound strange to you, uh, but the opposite of the gospel is not doing bad things. That's what we think, right? Gospel good, misbehavior bad. It's, it's not the truth. The opposite of the gospel is thinking that any of us can be good enough to please God on our own. The opposite of the gospel is our own good works that we put our pride and we put our hope in. That is the opposite ends of the spectrum. That is the opposite of the gospel. A works-based system is opposite. Now what does this have to do with this passage? Listen. So many Christians have misunderstood these chapters in Genesis to be a story or to be stories about how someone obeyed God and then God blessed them. Rewarding their good behavior. Because that's what we do with our own children, right? They do something good, we reward them. You do it with your animals. Your dog does something right, you give the dog a cookie. That's what we do. That's how all of life works except for our relationship with Christ. That's not what's happening here. God through his glorious grace is gracious to those he shows graciousness to and he's merciful to those who he shows mercy to. This passage is a testament of God's sovereign grace. Isaac was completely and absolutely unworthy of God's grace. He wasn't good enough, he wasn't smart enough, he wasn't holy enough to please God. And God says, you're not good enough, but I am. This changes everything for us. Because don't we have this bad habit of constantly putting weights on our shoulders? Constantly saying, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, and we keep adding and adding and adding to the weight that we cannot carry ourselves. Isaac did nothing to earn the grace of God. Isaac's sin, like ours, separated him from God's blessing. But Jesus stepped in for Isaac. He lived a life that Isaac couldn't. He suffered the wrath of God on Isaac's behalf. And he defeated sin and the death by rising from the grave, something that Isaac could not do. You can't do it either. And neither can I. But the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to. Have you ever experienced what it feels like when you're physically unable to do something and someone does it for you? These these moments for the last week, I've been thinking about Josh, and I I think about the times that he did things for me that I couldn't do. I I had neck surgery, and I wasn't allowed to lift more than 10 pounds for three months. And you know who was at my house every week cutting my grass? Josh. Josh. He did something I couldn't do, and it gave me amazing peace. I would look out my window, and I'd see the grass getting taller, and I'd say, nope, Josh is going to be here. Grass isn't going to grow longer. Josh is going to cut it for me. Peace. I didn't have to carry literally or physically the weight of having to mow my own lawn for those months that I was out, and someone else came in and did it for me. I don't have to worry about that anymore. This is what the gospel is, only infinitely better. That Jesus took what we deserved and put it on his shoulders, and the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us. Jesus gave us his righteousness, his perfection, that it could be credited to our account, so that when we stand before God the Father, we can say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is the gospel that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Would you pray with me?